you should introduce him as this guy I met on IRC five years ago. Yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. well, I was going through a, um, a catastrophic depression and uh, uh, recommitting myself to the Catholic Church. Yeah. It's the best way to meet people. Hey guys, welcome to your weekly episode of Exhaust, the podcast about why nothing is possible. Uh, I'm your co-host Emmett, and with me is John. And today we have our friend Mike with us. Salam alaikum. Alaikum salam. And uh, I met Mike five years ago on IRC chat while I was living in a small town in Vermont going through a catastrophic depression and recommitting myself to the Catholic church, which didn't last, but got me through a hard time. And <laughs> he and John were sort of my boosters for unfucking my life <laughs> via Abrahamic religion uh, while that was happening. Um, and so it's good to meet him now. It's good to have him here. Um, if you recognize his voice, you've probably heard him on what's donald parkinson's podcast called uh you can't win you can't, you can't win. win that's right you two were both on there talking about uh coronavirus a few months ago right before yep. it came to the u.s yeah yeah we were and uh i remember john sending me the link and like i was doing dishes like that's no, no, that's like peak podcasting <laughs> listening for me is like when i'm doing chores <laughs> so that i'll actually do yeah. them and I was like yeah. in my kitchen doing chores and I'm like listening to you guys talk and I'm like scrubbing faster and faster <laughs> like as, <laughs> as you go through what like coronavirus is. And then eventually like my wife comes into the kitchen. I just look at her and I was just like, I'm going to Trader Joe's. We need groceries. <laughs> yeah, we um, corona-pilled Emmett back when life seemed normal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I walked to Trader Joe's like in the pouring rain. I get there. All of the frozen food is already gone <laughs> people don't have masks so they're wearing like winter scarves in los angeles like around their face and everyone looks like terrified yeah yeah that was a that was an intense time actually it's it's weird that like you know it's it's worse now but people are more relaxed seeming seemingly i don't know oh, i don't know about where you guys are but yeah yeah we're like over the hump where everyone was kind of freaked out but now they're like, okay, that was boring. So I'm going to yeah. see what the <laughs> limits of what I can do are here. Yeah. Well, I think they're also like, it's interesting. I was listening to like a neuropsych guy who was like a pretty non-bullshitty neuropsych guy. And he was just like, yeah, you just can't maintain thinking about whether or not it matters if you touched a certain door handle for like months on end. Like you just can't yeah. like neuroplasticity just won't work at that level for an extended window of time. Yeah, I think it is, it's, it's so tedious, right? I mean, it's, it's such an extra layer of complication, absolutely everything that you're doing. You know, if you, if you really want to 
it, it's it's it becomes a job, right? Like maintaining aseptic technique in any facility, much less your home, is a full time job. Mm-hmm. Right? So you know, if you're adding trying to add that to everyone's daily routine, it's not going to work. Well, and especially um, if people aren't being like supplied with the proper PPE regularly. Yeah. And why that didn't happen in America is something we will probably end up talking about uh, as we go into our main topic for the night. Um, And if there is no consistent messaging from institutions on how that works. I mean, I think, you know, coronavirus isn't so big in and of itself. I think it is the... um, the way it exacerbated every single institutional weakness and economic shortcoming we'd been papering over with norms um, and conventional wisdom for the past, maybe like honestly, 20, 30 years. Yeah. You know, yeah, I think that's, that's about right. And, and I think that's true both of, of China and the U S you know, like the U S is currently getting the, the worst of the, the public press on coronavirus, but I think it, it revealed deep weaknesses and deep uh, institutional failures in both of those countries. Yeah, exactly. And both of them have to do with the problems of what do you do with a federated nation state? Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. Because in China, it is uh, the CCP's tensions with local governments um, and their conflicting interests in uh, irrigating information, like the spread of a deadly virus. And um, in the U.S., it has been the failure of the executive, despite the absolute collapse of power into the executive over the past 40 years, uh, to make any decisions. And so it was uh, a war of governor against governor uh, for even basic supplies for months, you know, in terms of bidding wars. Like, that's, it's hard to overstate, like, what type of failure that is for a society. I think we're almost lucky that we live in that era of the memory hole, because if I think if that were like fully assimilated, it would be even way more troubling than it is right now. Yeah, it it was pretty wild for a while. Um, You know, when there are all those reports coming out of, you know, U.S. government officials going to bid on PPE in American markets Mm -hmm. and just being like outbid by, by foreigners, by you know, Chinese businessmen mm-hmm. and so on, and just walking away with enormous amounts of PPE that was manufactured in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or in New, Mexico, in New Mexico, the feds rolled up and uh, requisitioned their entire supply and then just made them bid for it, uh, which is insane to think about. Really? Um, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, there are all sorts of problems where it was like, uh, if you weren't uh, trying to bid against uh, foreign entities you were trying to bid against like wisconsin you know and like what do you do like when you're doing that you know like that's a really that's a dysfunctional nation state and so i think that's like a pretty good on-ramp to what we're going to talk about because i think ultimately what we're going to talk about is um a movie about panic over the breakdown of norms um, and this is Errol Morris, the famous Errol Morris's documentary, his extended interview with Stephen K. Bannon um, called American Dharma, which hit the festival circuits in 2018 
and then somehow got released in 2019 and it seems like no one talked about it um you know and uh is now available for renting on youtube at least that's how i watched it um and so what i wanted to do while we uh before we start diving into what's going on in this film um i kind of wanted to get a read from you guys on what your initial impressions were and since uh mike's our guest i might put him on the spot um and welcome him into the conversation like that I, I was very surprised and disappointed. Um, I have seen a number of Errol Morris's films, and I think all of them I thought were worthy of the time required to watch them and had merit as um, documentary evidence of some subject. And this one, you know, it, it, it just struck me as like, two traffickers and images just kind of like shooting the shit you know like I, it just was not it was not the same um and you know i just the the thing that kept coming to my mind is like these two old retarded boomers just like saying shibboleths to each other and they're not they're not able to connect them like they can't even have a debate right it's and uh, yeah that was that was my impression. I was disappointed. Yeah, I think I was I was uh, disappointed as well. Um, but before I say anything about that, John, what about you? Yeah, I, the first like twelve to fifteen minutes felt pretty promising because I think they had a they had a good ramp up. You know, you had Bannon talking about Dharma, which is like okay, like let's see where you go with this. Like, yeah, what like, are you let's get say? weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Like, okay, what's the Dharma of the United States of America? Like, what's the Tao? Like, show, show me the way. And you realize that ends up being like a throwaway line that may or may not hint at some sort of deeper beliefs he holds, which we'll never explore in the film. And, but then next you get um, a bunch of like, maybe kind of like, generic now but still good like anti-globalist sentiment in terms of he took it home with like i grew up in a town that was destroyed by vietnam and then i saw that the uniforms were made in vietnam and it's like okay yeah like that's pretty real like if that's sort of the basis of your whole thing like that's pretty cool i'm mm -hmm. willing to like listen to more of this now where are you going to go with this how are you going to connect this to what you were doing with trump and then it just pretty much stops and i think when I was watching it, I think Mike was also watching it and he was saying like, oh, they sound like they're both like sharing a bottle of gin or something because they get progressively like the speech gets slower. They just sound sort of like slurry and, and it just, yeah, it's just like, it totally sort of broke down. And from that point on, the only interesting thing to me were the films that they were showcasing like Bridge on the River Kwai, uh, Henry V. And, it would have been interesting. It made me think of a post on The Last Psychiatrist where he talks about how when people bring up a film to you to talk about their life, the thing you should look at in the film is what they did not mention to you about that film because usually it's like a very significant part that they have left out that they are not even seeing in regards to how they're forming the narrative of their own life. But when you find that piece, you're like, oh, this explains you kind of like from the outside, the thing that you don't see about yourself, but that's totally true. It would be kind of fun to do that to Bannon with those movies if I ever had the time. 
but yeah, I just have to agree. Kind of like started out like it could have been cool, but really just fell apart. Yeah. <clears throat> so I think that that's generally true. I think the first half was far more interesting than the second half. Um, and I think uh, that story about watching uh, his high school football coach lose his son in Vietnam and then going to his daughter's West Point volleyball game to see that her volleyball uniform was made in Vietnam and being like, what the fuck was this for? Um, was both a powerful story and the first tell that this guy hasn't really thought through what he's doing. Because if you don't understand that part of the Vietnam War was for that result, then I really don't know how to help you in terms of your critique of globalization. (laughs) (laughs) The volleyball game was in like 2008, right? Yeah, you know, (laughs) I was like, whoa. That's pretty pretty late. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's, what's, that's what's sort of interesting, right? Um, and I think sort of what does work unintentionally in the movie um, is that we start to see pretty clearly um, that these guys are two guys spitting shibboleths at each other because the American way as an idea and the American consensus has just totally degraded over time is that it's sort of like an empty storehouse of cultural artifacts, which I thought it would why part of the most powerful elements of the movie, movie were them talking about movies, right? Mm. Movies that were very much a product of the Cold War and the cultural Cold War that created what we understand to be as the American psyche and the American way. Now, this is going to be especially true for 12 Glock High and for The Searchers. I mean, uh, John Wayne is hard to beat in terms of a certain iteration of America's self-image. Um, but I also don't think that uh, Bridge on the River, River Kwai are too, is too separate from the American idea of itself um, in terms of a West versus East thing that was very present in America in its relationship with Japan, especially on into the 30s and then once dragged into war in the 40s. Um, so... That's all to say that these are sort of secondhand dealers in ideas whose main dealers have stopped supplying them. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. Know. No, I think that's right on. You, that, that was really the feeling that I got. Like, there's just, there's nothing, you know, and it, like there's, there's one point where um, Errol Morris catches Bannon in the, this obvious kind of contradiction that, all right, well, there's this populist rhetoric that um, is disconnected from the actual result, which is, you know, further entrenchment of elite rule and so on and so forth. And he just he just doesn't press it. Like, he has nothing to say about it. He just, you know, Bannon's just kind of, like, laughing at him, right? Just like, yes, of course, this is the contradiction. Of course, this is a stalking horse for elite power, right? And you're just playing the game. Like, you're, you're, you've been sucked into just saying, like, identity politics, you know, memes basically in response to this stalking horse and that's all he has it's bizarre it's totally bizarre especially because we all watched the movie after it came out that steve bannon just got indicted for defrauding americans uh for creating a gofundme to fund that wall or something like that and they just (laughs) took all the money to buy yachts (laughs) and like fuck off (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, and I think that shows how hollow it is. So he actually went on the podcast Red Scare a few months ago. Okay. Um, which, of course, made a bunch of people incredibly, basically pissed off all the right people. Um, but I really have to give um, Anna and Dasha credit because they really didn't let them off the hook. They were sort of like, how can you be a populist and not support like Medicare for all, like these basic things that would help the American working class? And he doesn't have an answer because I think in part, you know, I think it's more complicated than he's just cynical. That's what Mm -hmm. came, became clear to me in the movie is that like, this is sort of what happens when you start buying your own bullshit is I think Mm -hmm. he's totally convinced that he is an actual populist because his idea of being working class after having been sort of smoothed out by American elite institutions is the cultural working class elements of him that have survived his trajectory upwards, right? Because now he's totally divorced from workaday life in a way that's incredibly powerful. Mm. And so cultural shibboleths are the only way that he's going to understand something like class, you know? Um, And I think that's part of like how hollow and cynical this was. It's amazing to me that it's even more cynical than like um, the Tories are right now, Um, especially because he was so adamant that uh, in quoting Nigel Farage by saying, Brexit would have never happened without Breitbart London, right? But I have to admit, like even Boris understands governance at some level. The Tories have what, like (laughs) refunded the rails and have been managed to be more consistent in like supplying their population with the basics to get through this meltdown uh, than anything Bannon was a part of. One thing that really occurred to me where you were just talking was that he's the exact right age to be a stereotypical boomer narcissist. And he yeah, actually my guy, my totally, guy walked out of the index of a Christopher Lash book that never got written. He, <laughs> he fits the bill so well, actually, when I was thinking like, how do I make sense of the things that he says and believes and does? And it's the exact same story. There was a, a great, um, there was like an alone post where he's talking about this guy who's like a salesman. He's a traveling salesman and he goes town to town and he smokes cigarettes and eats fast food while he's on the road, but that's not him. You know, that's just like, it's what he's doing right now, but that's not who he is. And then he goes to like the hotel or the convention center or whatever, and goes to the sales show. And then afterwards he meets some girl in the bar and sleeps with her, but he loves his wife. And that's not him. Like, you know, like when he goes home, he's not this guy who's on the road. He's this guy who he knows who he is. Like, I'm a loving husband. I'm a good guy. I don't smoke. I take care of myself. But then suddenly he has a heart attack at 50 and he's like, oh, like, that's really weird because I'm healthy. You know, like I take care of myself and just like different things happening. His whole life breaks down around him and he can't understand it because this isn't who he is because he has a completely different idea of who he is from what he does, which is supposed to be like this very stereotypical, like, way that the boomer psychology formed i guess and we may have some version of it but Mm -hmm. it definitely felt to me like oh yeah because he starts out like we got to get out of these foreign wars and you're like yeah (laughs) that's true "But, but wait why did you make a whole bunch of documentaries about like fighting global islamic terrorism yeah and <laughs> like, also like why? how fucking tight war is like why are all your movies favorite movies about how sick it is to go to war <laughs> yeah it's just like wait, why do you you know because the whole 
nothing about him seems like it has anything to do with the Bush perspective on like the global scene, you know, like we have to fight global terror, like everything about Bannon seems like he should be positioning himself against that. But this is like this whole weird part of him where he's also like a Catholic crusader, but Mm -hmm. he's also like a populist who wants to rein in foreign wars. He's also like, and I feel like it honestly must be the same as it would be for anybody. Just like, Oh, I, I do a lot of things that I do, but like also I have this image of myself that I've gotten from a ton of movies that I watch and you know, like I can just, it's just something I can paper over until it all falls apart. Kind of like right now. Mm -hmm. Well, I think like, um, you know, there's this thing that I, I think about, uh, I see it on online all the time. You check somebody's Twitter bio and it's just like, um, tanky like you know i don't know D D. like you know it's just like a list of it's like i call it voltron politics where it's just like this end, endless list of like you know um bordigist tanky like you know catholic traditionalist or whatever and you're like how the fuck do these fit together as like a unified vision of how to experience the world and then you realize that it really that's not really what it's about like that's not what the project is about the project is about figuring out how to do a certain level of psychic maintenance that gives you enough perspective to feel like you're aware of what's happening around you but not so much clarity that it makes you uncomfortable and so there's Mm. this whole buffet of things you can pick and choose throw from as you go through and create your personality through the manufacture of what you think is a political ideology, mm. right? And this is an intergenerational problem, right? It might be more acute in millennials who had the uh, severe misfortune of being adolescents during Tumblr, um, which I think is like a net bad, honestly. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, there's actually a lot I like about um, the internet and like being able to be an autodidact and like engage with people you might not otherwise meet. I still love those things, but um, there are certain platforms that I think really bred um, uh, a disturbing template for interacting with the world. And it was surprising, I think, to see that Bannon basically fit that same archetype, you know? And I mean, it's not like nobody's ever done that. Like T.S. Eliot was the same way. He's like, well, aesthetically, I'm a classicist. Politically, I'm a monarchist. And religiously, I'm a Catholic integralist. And it's like, what the fuck are you talking about, my guy? You know? Um, And he's like, and that's why Virgil is the first European poet. And you're like, bro, what? (laughs) Where did that come from? (laughs) I guess Bannon's like bleeding edge in a way. In terms of politicians, he's probably like way more towing that line well he did have he does have better instincts than people like Mm. morris right so here yeah so here's what i'll say like in steve bannon's favor and in this interview's favor right so i went and watched i was like how did i was like how come it seemed like there was no press cycle for this you know like Mm. 
I w- it seems like I brought it up um, to my co-working session in Indie Thinkers uh, that we were going to do this. And I'm like on a call with 10 other people from like the English speaking world. And they're just like, Errol Morris did a new movie. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I don't know what that's all about. So I went and watched some interviews with him. And the main one I watched was with the head editor of Salon, um, which has like... Uh, never been that good, but has like greatly declined since people like Glenn Greenwald left it, um, you know, uh, around the time the Snowden files leaked. Um, and here's what's interesting. The editor of Salon is basically like, were you surprised that Steve Bannon is kind of smart? <laughs> like as a sincere question, like as a sincere question, like, cause he's yeah. so bad. Like, were you surprised that he's like kind of smart? And I was like, holy shit, man. Like, this guy's the head editor of, like, a major news outlet in America. Or, like, um, and then what was the other question he asked? Oh, my God. I just about died. I had to pause the video. I was like, you got to be kidding me. He was just like, he was like, I hate to say this. Like, I can't believe I'm saying it. But like, there was a surprising, like, sensitivity to Steve Bannon. Like, I hate to say that, you know. And I was like, hate to say what? Like, <laughs> that's not a, even a moral description. Like, you're just saying the guy has feels and it's noticeable, like, on camera. <laughs> In a documentary that was meant to elicit emotions out of him to capture yeah. by one of the yeah. expert interviewers of American pop culture. Just, just wild, man. Like I, it, it's hard to know even what to make of that. Like, it, just that entire class. Like Errol Morris didn't used to be that dumb. Okay, I, I swear to God, Errol Morris. No, like I something mean, happened, or you know. I mean, so let me put it this way. Like, okay, here's my grand theory of why this movie happened, and you guys can tell me if I'm full of shit or like take it apart. Okay. So here's what I think happened. <clears throat> First, let's start with Errol Morris. He makes Fog of War, which is incredible, right? That's an astounding movie, the fact that he got to sit with Robert McNamara for that long. Um, And to use it, I thought it was very clever to not do an antagonistic interview, Mm -hmm. uh, but to do one where he makes Robert McNamara his teacher and the audience's teacher, right? You know, Robert McNamara prides himself on being one of the smartest guys that American institutions has produced. I mean, he hyper-rationalized the brutality of the Vietnam War, and he ran the World Bank after that. It is hard to get more technocratic than that, right? So that's the brilliance of that movie, is that it allows him to be as self-serving as possible, which is revealing accidentally. That's amazing, Mm. right? The next guy, the next like big interview people think about, um, because Errol Morris has made a ton of movies like thin blue line is great um but the other big one people think about is um unknown known uh with uh d rummy donald rumsfeld the mephistopheles of the bush era right and that movie centers around donald rumsfeld's memos right the snowflakes and what it's interested in is donald rumsfeld's Um, idiosyncrasies and a behind closed doors look at how he disseminated information because he was very much an information oriented guy and almost the aesthetics of his informational distribution and requisition, right? Because he also 
talks about how he would request dictionary definitions of certain words. And that was all pointed towards his ability to orchestrate uh, the media aspect um, and more of the Iraq war, right? So this is an incredible war crime, this thing. Uh, and you get to watch him successfully evade Errol Morris, right? Mm-hmm. The perfect moment in that documentary uh, is that <laughs> Zoom is just like, you're about to run out of time. We're going to give you a free 40 minutes. I was like, fuck, I didn't realize I have to pay for that. I guess I'd better look into it. Um, <laughs> Uh, the the most important moment in that movie is, to me is when Errol Morris asks him some sort of really pointed like Errol Morris question where he's actually getting a little antagonistic, right? And he thinks like, I've got him. It's like the perfect, it feels like watching him, like a, a cage descend over Don Rumsfeld, like in a cartoon, you know? And then Donald Rumsfeld says, did you mean? And then rephrases the question bit by bit to flatter him. And then he grins and he says, did you see how I did that? <laughs> you know, I'm like, that's it. Like, that's it. You know, I think what's important is that the line, the succession of McNamara, who Bannon savagely critiques because Fog, Fog of War mm. inspired him, to Rumsfeld is clear to me. And then it's clear that their project is over. And what's mm. left? What's left is Bannon, this weird aesthetic oligarchic pseudo populism and it's also clear that politics has gotten completely hollowed out there are no longer these great cold war men pulling the strings Mm. it's more of like a weird media free-for-all yeah and the liberals have dominated that sphere almost entirely i mean look at the national book award like when's the last time a conservative won the national book award let alone an actual left winger or something like that right um and so i think the crisis that morris is responding to is that bannon through his frankly incredibly canny instinct usurped the commanding heights of media attention from a liberal establishment that had gotten very cozy in its ability to dictate the terms of how that worked. One hand washed the other. If the Republicans were going to go to war in Iraq, then Errol Morris got to make a documentary about it that made us all feel better because it exposed him for yeah. what a slime ball he really was. But you can't do that now because, well, frankly, Breitbart learned the game better than anybody else. So that's how I think Steve Bannon ended up sitting across from Errol Morris. It's almost amazing how in retrospect, like what you're saying, I think when they were talking about how Breitbart kind of came out on top and the things that they were realizing that other people didn't know, which was that like, Oh, our comment section is like full of people who are like, that you know, was, the most amazing and like criminally underexplored part of like what brought Bannon his success. Just, yeah. Cause you think about it, you're like, yeah, go back in time to when Breitbart was really getting into it. And there really wasn't any kind of large media apparatus designed for the like billions of people in those comment sections. I think it was another thing. He didn't say it in the movie, but in another interview, Bannon talks about the whole wow thing where he was running uh, the company that was doing gold farming and wow. Yeah. 
Oh, he talks about that in, in the Earl Morris movie. Well, he leaves out one thing, which oh, is okay. that maybe he gets into it a little bit, but for him, it was apparently um, a huge moment when he realized that his company could get shut down by a bunch of WoW players who were angry that gold farming was ruining the in-game economy. And he said that was when he realized that there were a bunch of guys out there on computers that were going to be like a real political force that no one was exploiting at all. And that that's something he should look into. And then a hmm. few years later, like, you know, the whole Breitbart thing, it was just very interesting to me because now it's like, yeah, no brainer. Like there's tons of guys out there. If you can get through the sort of, like reticence that most people already involved in media have towards dealing with those people, then yeah, like you're in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're the deplorables, right? Like it is a brilliant moment when Bannon says, when Hillary gave that deplorable speech, I realized she'd stepped right into my trap. Yeah. I was like, that's exactly right, man. Like I've never seen someone step on a rake with a running start uh, <laughs> as hard as that speech. That was, that was what was so amazing to me about this movie is that Bannon sets that up. He sets up what his overall strategy is to deal with liberal discourse. And I, I like there's like minute 15 or 20 of the movie and the rest of the movie, Errol Morris is playing by the liberal playbook, which Ben has already demonstrated that yeah, he doesn't work. It, right? like it's just... <laughs> it doesn't work. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think that's, and that becomes really clear in their discussion about Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's the one moment where they actually meet right? Yeah. Where they actually talk to each other on common terms when he says, my God, what he's done with the millennials. And Errol Morris says, I mean, my son won't talk to me. Like he's mad at me because I voted for her in the primary over Bernie. And rightly, Bannon is just like, how could you do that? <laughs> right? And Errol Morris, it's interesting that his instinct is, I mean, understandably to get like very defensive because like Bannon's yeah. like fucking pissed at him, which I get. Yeah. But what's interesting is he doesn't have an explanation other than I was scared of guys like you. And it's like, yeah. And then the conversation about Bernie ends and it's like, wait, but yeah. why didn't you think that this guy who was doing a left populism might have a more legitimate claim to basically everything Bannon has just said. Right. And therefore might be able to stop him in his tracks because that was the one thing that, Trump couldn't do because all he could say was crazy Bernie, but it didn't really work. Right. It didn't work in the same way. Bernie won 23 out of 57 primaries in 2016. That's crazy. Yeah. He wasn't even running to win. We can have a whole thing about how he fucked up his 2020 campaign. Like that's a like the whole different kettle of fish. Um, but uh, that's amazing. Um, and I think, uh, that to me spoke volumes about, as you said, Mike, that this was just going to be a shibboleth measurement contest, you know? Yeah. It's, it, it, it's something that is, is very peculiar in the context of Errol Morris being a guy who knows all of, you know, he knows all of this stuff that he's omitting from the film and he's leaving in, like, I, I think he must've talked more in this interview than he did in any of his other interviews. No, it's a mutual like, interview. It's a conversation. 
It's not. Right, it's, he doesn't even have the enterotron in the same way. Right. It's three quarters behind him rather than totally right. obscuring him, right? Like he's inserted in the frame in a new way. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, the, the thing, like, I, there, there are many things, many omissions that I found very strange, um, you know, on, on both sides. But, you know, ultimately, the thing that really struck me about Morris was that, like, it was almost as though his kind of journalistic or investigative instinct had collapsed into itself. And he could no longer go beyond, you know, like, there's all these sequences where he's flashing up, you know, headlines from um, New York Times and other mainstream uh, newspapers about the Russiagate stuff which was just all total fucking nonsense, right? And yeah, none of you know, it was it's, real. It's, none of it was real. And, you know, Bannon, Bannon doesn't even, like, I, I kind of suspect that Bannon was on pills or that he was drinking or something because, like, you know, by, by this point when they're talking about the Russiagate stuff, he gets around to starting to debunk the Christopher Steele report, which is, like, the center of this whole thing. Yeah, the thing. Steele dossier, which was to- a total crock. Which is just total bullshit. And he starts to talk about it and then he's just like, eh, whatever. Right? Like, and he just kind of trails <laughs> off. And like, yeah. it, it, it's, it's just so, like, they, they don't even want to or they're not able to engage with anything real that actually happened. Right? No. <laughs> it's, it's very strange, you know. And it reminds me, the, the thing that came to my mind was like William Gibson. Uh, supporting Hillary, and I remember hearing about that and just being like, "Man, Wait, that guy's is that real? Is, just, is that real? yeah? <laughs> oh, yeah. Man. Oh, it's, it's, and, and it's just like that. That guy's worldview must have just totally collapsed in on itself. Like he can't cope anymore, right? Like he can't deal with what's going yeah. on. So. So, no, I think you're right. To put, so I think here's how we might be able to like pierce like into how it collapsed in on itself in that moment, right? Because Bannon is right to say this looked like raw intel. I told him not to fire Comey, right? Which I th- I'm sure he did say that and was the Probably. right thing. He was just like, just don't do it. Then it'll all blow over. Like they will, it's the cover up is worse than the crime type of thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, and so he was like, just let this guy serve out his shit. Like it doesn't fucking matter. Fuck these people. Like just do what yeah. you're going to do, whatever. And Trump doesn't do that. Um, but because Errol Morris has sort of um, drank from the poisoned well of Russiagate, he can't interrogate that very interesting moment where Bannon, that's the true Falstaffian moment, by the way, where Bannon, it is clear, no longer has a real presence in Trump's court. Because that is probably actually Trump's biggest fuck up was letting Comey go. Had he not done that, the last four years would be completely different. It's sort of like endemic in a way because I it's like a lot more than just Errol Morris. Like I've just talked to a lot of people in the world who are like of that age. Mm-hmm. And one thing that is sort of like common to them all is the fact that they used to, I don't know, we used to have such interesting discussions um, just about the world and like things and, you know, like art and politics. Mm. And like, I don't know, it just felt like, yeah, we all have really like pretty nuanced views about these things. And then after this stuff, 
we'll have like a conversation where I'm like, yeah, like here are my misgivings about like the liberal establishment and like why, you know, Biden, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they'll be like, yeah, totally. Like, yeah, globalism, wars, whatever. Like, you know, we'll have this conversation and then I'll be like, okay, cool. Like we're on the same page. And then like, you know, a few weeks later, they're like, we just got to get Trump out of there though. Like then everything probably will be fine again. Mm -hmm. And I think on some level, like trying to be pretty generous, honestly, because it's sort of like weird and troubling to me that this keeps happening where they're just like <laughs> doing a complete reset every time we like no longer talk for a it's week. And then suddenly, exactly. It's like an Etch-a-Sketch where they're back to like what Errol Morris was back to, which is like, we got to get him out. We have to get rationality back in government. There's like these platitudes that don't really mean anything. And Mm-hmm. on some level it feels like this is the only way in which they can be optimistic about the future and perhaps that is part of it like if they can actually hang on to the fact that like a biden presidency would be just like good and mm-hmm. then like getting trump out would be like good then it's like oh it's sort of possible for like life to be good again and then mm-hmm. i can feel like my kids lives are going to be good and i don't have to like feel like everything's kind of really messed up and it's going to be that way for a really long time and probably getting worse and worse. Um, just retreating. I don't know. It just feels like a retreat into like, well, if I believe these things, then it's all sort of going to be okay. Mm-hmm. It feels like a lot of people are doing that, but it, it seems, it seems to be a feature of, I don't know, people a bit older than us. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be, there's definitely like a hatred of democracy thing going on, um, which has to do with sort of the appeal to like rational technocracy. I mean, that's one of my favorite things that happened was there's a whole slew of articles that came out after Trump won that were like, do we have too much democracy? It's like so he lo- and it was like he lost the popular vote. Like he won because of a liberal institution that mitigates popular sovereignty. (laughs) (laughs) If we'd had more democracy, like a more direct democracy, he would have fucking lost. (laughs) You know, so it's just not true at that level. But like, it really makes you realize like what, um, what it was meant when Margaret Thatcher said there is no alternative it's easy, I think, for me to hear that on one level and be like, that's somebody in power basically playing their ace and saying, I'm right. And uh, this is just the way things are now. In other words, instantiating a hegemony. What I don't appreciate, is, it took me a while to fully appreciate, is that uh, there's really a narrowing down of possibility that happens there, which should seem obvious, but because I've grown up in this world, took me a long time to recognize Mm -hmm. for what it is, which is that of course, people who have lived their whole lives, built their whole futures, had kids um, after that moment, only have recourse to what was on the table then because there was no alternative. There was just one thing on the table. Like what other future is there? Like we titled this pod, we titled this podcast because there's an exhaustion of politics and culture that feels ubiquitous and somehow this like 
I mean, I feel like a bumblebee trying to fuck a marble. Like I just can't get what I want out of whatever this situation is. There's no way out of it. I'm just grinding away at this impossible thing forever, you know? And I think that they're stuck in that too. They might just not be as um, self-aware about it. I don't know, Mike, like what do you think is going on there? That sounds about right to me. I mean, I, I, I think the, the reality is, is that everyone senses that we're in a, a long-term kind of process of, of decline in one way or another, right? Like you, you, this shows up in just ordinary polling now. The majority uh, uh, now believe that the next generation or their children will be worse off than they are. Um, and that's been true for, for a few years now, right? Like for, for some time. So there's been a major shift in, in public psychology, public consciousness. And yeah, I mean, I think it's necessary to make that tractable in your mind, right? Like, cause if the, uh, alternative to, you know, just perpetual liberal hegemony is collapse is, you know, fighting for food or something like that then you just you have to you have to have some some kind of psychological mechanism to deal with that to go to work right how are you going to show up in a cubicle believing that you know like this is this is it right like we're in a a long-term process of decline and collapse and you know nothing that you're doing at the moment really matters or mitigates that or helps your children or does anything like that Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's also, I mean, I think this is where we should sort of like talk about what Steve Bannon means, right? Mm. We've done a good job of like walking through why this couldn't be the movie it probably should have been. What should have been a movie about, as I mentioned to John before we started recording, how it is that Steve Bannon ended up becoming the type of guy that sits across from Errol Morris. Mm. Instead, it ended up, being um, Errol Morris really getting to unravel Steve Bannon, but unraveling Steve Bannon, uh, unwittingly unraveling himself and making you realize Mm -hmm. that you don't know why a movie needed to get made about Steve Bannon. (laughs) Yeah. Right. At least compared (laughs) to Robert McNamara, (laughs) Donald Rumsfeld, you know, as, as uh, I mentioned earlier. So what do you guys think Bannon moment meant? Like we're almost at the end of Trump's first term. The Bannon moment seemed even shorter to me, right? It was an even briefer window, but this movie comes out after that has closed. And I think maybe part of his quiet, actual dissemination, like transition out of the festival circuit into the mainstream culture is sort of that it's closed. So what was this moment and what did it mean? Do you guys think? I guess I can go ahead and say that I have thought about it a lot and, it continually seems to me to be utterly inscrutable in a way, um, like most things. Because when I think about it, well, I'll say that in the beginning, I remember just seeing that this guy was like a person, you know, I never heard of him before. And I think, I think we were in the middle of the election or maybe it had just happened and he was in office. It was like 2016. Um, and I was like, yeah, who is this guy? He, he seems like a, sort of like more of an outsider type figure. So that's interesting. I'm curious about that. And 
he's being accused of all sorts of interesting stuff. So I should check him out. And and he was really funny. He described Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan as a limp dick motherfucker that was grown in a petri dish at the Heritage Foundation. <laughs> yeah, which you is read like something one like of the that. funniest lines I had ever heard. <laughs> you read something like that, and you're like we could be friends. Like, let's, let's check this out. <laughs> yeah. You're like, maybe he's not so bad. <laughs> yeah. I remember getting into just watching a ton of interview footage of him from maybe a little bit before, just trying to see what was up. And, you know, it's sort of like, I couldn't really find anything that interesting, honestly, which was sort of weird. Cause it was like, yeah, he's, he's really into populism and he's saying that he's a Leninist and he's going to tear it all down and he's going to destroy he used to talk about destroying the state a lot in a sort of vague way, but I think he meant the like technocratic, like engineering science. I think that was code for the establishment. Yeah. Yeah. Like he wanted to dismantle that because only by dismantling that could he, it was sort of weird because he would say like, that's how you would like unleash the real sort of like capabilities of the country and allow people to live well again and things like that just none of it ever made any sense to me. Like none of it mapped onto anything that I ever understood politically. Like, like we already discussed really. Uh, It just sort of felt like a lot of different things kind of coming together. And then he was there for a while and it was sort of interesting when they got into the, um, the early executive orders and they would all say like, yeah, people say that you're really the man behind many of these executive orders and I, I don't know. I think he mentioned uh, Stephen Miller. Yeah, he hides behind Stephen Miller. It's a very interesting moment. He brings that guy up, but it then made me kind of wonder, like, there are probably, like, I don't know, 50 guys in this administration, like Stephen Miller, who we've never heard of, who probably all had a hand in this kind of thing. And Bannon ended up becoming this really convenient figure for... Um, Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Do you want to mute your mic for a sec? Yeah. Well, how do, how do I do that? So it should be on the lower right, uh, lower left. Sorry. A little, little, yeah, there you go. Okay, cool. I'll just circle back around. Yeah. Um, so there's like 50 Stephen Millers. Yes. For me, it was almost like the opposite. Like he is trying to hide behind him in that moment, but I almost felt like, probably there were a lot of guys like that doing a lot of the work and then Bannon is sort of receiving the spotlight for this kind of thing. And it was clear that the media really found in him like an easy person to scapegoat onto some of the worst aspects of what was going on just in the whole country at the time. Like you saw it with the Charlottesville thing where just a really bizarre exchange takes place where Bannon's like, those are bad guys. Those are real bad guys. Like they don't have any place in this movement. They're so bad. And Errol Morris is like, uh, but it happened, you know, like, what do you have to say? It's just like, what are you guys even talking about anymore? And then he plays all the footage of it. And it just sort of feels, I think like Mike said, like no one's talking about anything real. They're just sort of casting things around onto each other. And I, that's sort of how I feel about Bannon in total and the Bannon moment is like, you could say that his arrival and his, his, you know, grobby toss, the reason that people sort of found him compelling was that a lot of his ideas really resonate with people. And that's definitely true. Like there's a lot of people out there, the same people who are 
you know, extremely right wing yet voted for Bernie, I'm sure also found a lot to like in Bannon because he had a lot of the same sort of messages, but, you know, trying to like retrospectively look and say what this means. It's extremely hard to say what anything means for me anymore these days. So, but it, I'm sure it'll appear significant in like 10 years, but it also feels extremely hollow as far as like, this was not an event, you know, like Donald Rumsfeld and Bush were still sort of somehow an event. Like they really did something. It was horrible. But in a way, this sort of feels kind of like a, it was supposed to be something real, mm-hmm. but I can't tell you what that would be. Right. Well, it's almost like it's not so much that Steve Bannon won, it's that the liberal establishment lost. Right. Yeah. Like I think that's probably the most telling thing about the documentaries and perhaps the Bannon moment is that I think we realized like how fragile the press system was that brought a candidate to power. And Matt Taibbi was really smart about that. Probably one of the smartest on the campaign trail is when he said like, this shaming stuff isn't going to work. Like, where's Trump going to go? Like he just said that he thinks it rules that John McCain got tortured because he likes people that don't get captured. Like, (laughs) and he's still in the race. You know, He keeps, he keeps, he has nicknames for candidates, low energy Jeb, Lil Marco, you know, um, and this weird like schoolyard bully, like savant ability to do that. Goofy Elizabeth Warren, you know, like he just nails it. Um, but you couldn't, and you couldn't call him racist and he'd go away. So then like yeah. what recourse do you have? And I think Bannon, to me, the, thing that said the most about the Bannon moment to me in the documentary was um, when Bannon says they don't care about grabbing by the pussy. They care that their way of life is disappearing before their very eyes. You know, I also think that Bannon funnily enough takes credit for what I think was obviously Roger Stone's move, which was having Juanita Broderick and all those women there. I was like, there's no way you fucking thought of that. Like (laughs) only, only Roger Stone has like the psychosexual savvy to like set up a moment like that where the press walks in blind to a private press conference and all of Bill Clinton's accusers are there. Like uh, Bannon was the guy that was smart enough probably to get Roger Stone on board, but I don't think that, that was him. I think that was Roger Stone. Um, but I, I, I did give... like the footage of him just kind of reclining against the wall and like smirking <laughs> yeah. as everyone walks yeah, in. You just see him like exiting and when they, he sees the look go over their face, there's just this like beatific like glaze yeah. <laughs> <laughs> over his face. And I was like, honestly, Sam, <laughs> like yeah. that was, that's an amazing moment. You know, yeah. it really is. Yeah. That's what I kept like finding in the whole thing was that the moments, the really resonating moments were like, he's owning people that should get owned. Mm -hmm. And like something about that feels so good. But then once the ownage is over, there's like a sort of emptiness here. Yeah, it's a big victory. Yeah, if almost if even that, I don't know. It's just sort of like reliving the 2016 campaign through that documentary was also like, I just, it made me remember so many things like, oh yeah, when he like completely destroyed Jeb and when he like just, you know, ended all these people's careers. And 
you just remember how good that felt to watch. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it was really interesting that like a large part of the Republican voter base also wanted to watch most Republican politicians get completely slaughtered. (laughs) And there was something of like a collective joy and just like, if you couldn't like actually do anything to these people, then you could at least sort of make them like into a public mockery. Right. And we all enjoyed that. And for me, that sort of characterizes, I think his savvy, and I guess if we want to call it like the Bannon moment was like, like nothing like that ever really happened before in America, like in our lifetimes in American politics. Yeah, it was an Oz yep. moment, I would say. You know, it also made me remember guys I miss, like Anthony Scaramucci, oh, yeah. uh, who said of Steve Bannon, like, he's like, yeah, I'm not Steve Bannon. I'm not trying to suck the president's fucking dick on record to a New Yorker reporter. <laughs> You know, uh, <laughs> and then says, uh, anyway, I got to let you gotta go. I got to tweet, tweet some shit out that'll piss this asshole off. This asshole being Rince Priebus, who was, I think, like, head of the Republican, like, Ways and Means Committee or something, like, when that happened, you know? But um, uh, we're probably, I don't know if we're going to run out of time in a few minutes, but I sort of wanted to give the last word on the ban a moment to our guest, Mike, um, and hear from <laughs> our brother up north. Uh, what the Bannon moment looked like and what it meant. Yeah. I, I, I think, uh, I think the, the superficiality of it is, is right on, right? Like it was this, this bursting forth of, of a, a real um, complaint from, uh, uh, you know, the people if you want, but carried by um, a cipher for a particular elite faction, you know, and, um, I think Errol Morris's behavior in this uh, movie, his inability to to really ask, like, you know, there's there's so many things, so many moments. Like, there's one point where he brings up Roy Cohn, and it's like, great, you know, talk about Roy Cohn, talk about what Roy Cohn means to Trump, talk about who Trump is, ask about Trump and the Clintons, right? Like, get at something here. Did they go to parties but, together? Like. Wasn't Ghislaine yeah. Maxwell uh, at Chelsea Clinton's wedding? <laughs> like, yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. Didn't she absolutely. know Jeffrey? Yeah, yeah. You know, any any of those things, right, could have brought something out uh, of the the reality, which is you know this kind of very crass um, intra elite competition that's happening that's cloaked in, you know, populist rhetoric or liberal rhetoric or whatever, but really has nothing to do with any of those things anymore. And that's why we're reduced to, you know, well, that's racist, you know, like, but global homo is bad. Oh, but it's racist, right? Like, and it just goes back and forth. There's nothing there. Yeah. I mean, I think superficial is the word. I think what I learned from this documentary is exactly like, it just kind of confirmed what I knew before which is like why Bannon was the guy that could bring the sledgehammer to the edifice of the liberal establishment. And that like, that's kind of sad, you know, because he's unspectacular in so many ways, actually. Um, Even if he has a good line here or there, you know, I think that, um, we're in for a very interesting next decade, not just mm-hmm. because this has opened with COVID um, and all the resultant crises that are sort of part of this, um, but also because it's after the first Trump term. I don't know what's going to happen in November. 
Uh, I don't trust anybody that says that they know. Um, mm. <clears throat> but I think that uh, when I look back at the 20s and 30s, there is a protean aspect to politics that no longer exists. And to me, the Bannon moment is the signal of exhaustion, finally, of the American way and American consensus. And I think that's really what that means to me. And it's worrying that there's, uh, there's no one in the wings. You know, um, this is like a, this isn't even a waiting for Gatto moment, you know, because it's not even clear that we're waiting for anything. Um, a whole vista has opened up and it seems barren because uh, all that receded behind us was all that could be known. And somehow this vista is still populated only with the familiar, just somehow unrecognizable and not present. It doesn't seem to have any staying power. And maybe that's what decline looks like. One of the really interesting things about Mike bringing up William Gibson is that he's one of the people who taught me to like understand the world as it is today mm -hmm. in a way, because reading a lot of those novels, um, it introduced me, I guess, just to like what may seem like pretty stereotypical cyberpunk stuff, but it's sort of like when it's new to you, you're like, oh, like this is a new way for me to think about the world. I got that shit, man. I got that yeah. real shit. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, like this sort of, in a way, like, the different sort of media that I consumed as a teenager have actually prepared me in a way to sort of come to terms with what you're talking about in a way that maybe older people can't, which is perhaps why they're trying to find some kind of refuge in their older way of understanding things. Right. Because William Gibson was not a William Gibsonist. Yeah. Like, and that's the way. funny thing. That's the funny thing is that he's the guy, one of the guys who helped me say like, Oh, okay. Like this is it now. Like, you know, like the best we can hope for is like cyborg assassin prostitutes and like salary, sorry men, you know, with like the ID tags <laughs> in their necks. And then like there will be. I'm going to no... get my sunglasses spot welded to my eye sockets. <laughs> and there will be. Neo Tokyo, <laughs> seven yen. <laughs> there will be no hope for like a moral future, but it'll be sort of aesthetic or something. And you can like whatever morality is left you'll carry inside of you and try to like keep the light on for it or something mm -hmm. and, you know, be as best of a steward of it as you can in a time when there's no longer a hope for like social morality or I don't know, excellence or anything like that virtue. Um, so like I got all this sort of from these books and many other things. And then he's like, Oh, we got to vote for Hillary or else it's like all over. And you're just like, thought it already was, didn't you write that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> you're like, I know you know. <laughs> yeah. I know you yeah. know. Yeah. yeah. And uh maybe that's where we should leave it for the listeners. I know you know, and so do we. <laughs> um so tune in next week, guys. And Mike, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks yeah, for thanks. Me. My pleasure. <laughs>